For many years, I used to walk down a major road in downtown Cologne on my way to work. It took me up until this year, in 2019, that I always passed by an archaeological sensation without really knowing it. Because in the basement of a normal office building, well hidden underground, you can find the oldest stone building in Europe, north of the Alps. It is a remnant of the founding period of ancient Cologne. And the founding of Cologne is what this episode will be about. So stay tuned. Hello and welcome back to the History of Cologne podcast. I'm really glad that you turned back into this episode. Last episode we learned about Roman governor and general Marcus Agrippa, who decided to found a settlement on the Rhine River for the Ubian and Roman citizens. This settlement would soon develop into later ancient Cologne. You must know this, part of maintaining the empire, the Romans didn't just import wine and olives into newly conquered regions, they also brought their high urbanized Mediterranean culture with them that had been mostly unknown to Central Europe. And the empire, now under sole rule of Augustus, was eager to introduce this Roman way of life into the Rhinelands. First of all, I have to say, nothing extraordinary happened in the first years after the resettlement of the Ubii in 19 BCE. It can be assumed that the Ubian folk and Roman soldiers were busy with the construction of new farms and a livelihood in the Cologne lowland, and was needed desperately. The grain the Ubii would farm were not only for their self-supply. Emperor Augustus was sick and tired of Germans raiding the border. He launched a full-scale campaign onto the right side of the Rhine into Inner Germania. The Opidum Ubiorum and the other Ubian settlements were meant to be the granary for the Roman legions. The first of several Roman campaigns into Germania started in 12 BCE and would last until 7 BCE, conquering many parts of today's northwest Germany and the Netherlands. And this military apparatus needed a headquarter, of course. But since there was no central settlement in the region because this was unknown to the Germanic world, the Romans took action. They found an empty place close to the Rhine River. The spot was on a flood-proof hill that was 50 meters above the water level of the Rhine, with an island in the river in front of it. This island proved to be perfect as a natural harbor because there was only a small waterway that cut it off from the mainland. And the Romans sure could need a safe harbor. It is estimated that the military personnel of this area at least contained around 30,000 to 40,000 people. This meant that there were great demands on logistics and supplies. Hundreds of ships were needed to get personnel and supplies onto the other side of the Rhine for the conquest of Germania. And speaking of supplies, the Ubi alone who still had to get themselves accustomed to the area couldn't fulfill the demands of the Roman war machine all by their own. Weapons and materials would come from Gaul or Italy. And since many rivers entered the Rhine from the west and east, later Cologne was conveniently located and still is today. It is quite possible that the four legions that were stationed on the left bank of the Rhine for preparing operations to the other side had at least temporary or even permanent camps in what would later become Cologne. Sadly, as in so many times, there hasn't been any archaeological proof found in Cologne yet. But let us summarize again. Agrippina gave the Ubii parts of the left bank of the Rhine. Most of it was the Cologne lowland. This probably happened in 19 BCE. He also gave them a place to build a fortified city. It was called the Opidum Ubiorum, which is Latin for settlement of the Ubii. It is assumed that the Ubii then had to regroup and rebuild in the area. 
While that, from 12 BCE on, the Romans launched attacks into Inner Germania that lies on the right side of the Rhine. So, altogether, this is a time where many settlements like later ancient Cologne were being built in the Celtic-Germanic borderlands in today's western part of Germany, Belgium and the Netherlands. Like, the city of today's Nijmegen in the Netherlands is an example for that policy. Or even today's city in Trier, the name tells it, it was founded in Treveri territory. It is obvious that Rome made a lot of advertising for those new settlements, because they needed settlers to live there. Where the Roman army was stationed in large scale, enterprises could make a fortune with trade or crafts, because those Roman soldiers, they had to consume goods, and somebody had to supply it to them. And this was very attractive for many people in the empire who seek for more in life. Ancient Cologne was laid out for 96 hectares in the metric system, or 237 acres if you're an American. This magnitude of an area for a settlement exceeds the size of any Germanic settlement to date by any means. This proportion tells us that the city was not just designed for either Romans or Ubi alone, but for even more people. I want you to be kept on the rack and would like to tell you how exactly Cologne was founded. As always, it is quite complicated to put the record straight. It is quite sure that the Oppidum Ubiorum was founded not later than 19 BCE by Agrippa, as I had mentioned in the episode before. But can't archaeology not find any remains of that founding period? The thing is, later ancient Cologne would prosper in such many ways that the older buildings were always replaced by newer ones. Like, no town in the Midwest of the United States still has the cowboy-looking first wooden houses with saloons standing in downtown. Well, maybe for tourist reasons only. Just look how New York City has changed in just 100 years. So most of the Roman buildings that were found in excavations or building sites in today's Cologne were usually built a few centuries later. But in one case, we got lucky. I am talking about the Ubier Monument, which is German of course, or in English it would be translated to the Ubian Monument. The Ubian Monument in Cologne is the oldest stone building that has ever been found north of the Alps. The name of the structure is misleading though. The monument was more likely a tower, built in the southeast corner of ancient Cologne, and the style of architecture has a plain handwriting of Roman military engineers. Still, it was called the Ubian Monument when it was found during a construction work in the 1970s as a marketing gag. But more correctly, it should be just called Roman Tower. But I see this name, Roman Tower, is too humble. Because remember, this is the first stone building north of the Alps. This shouldn't be de-emphasized. The tower's initial purpose is not quite clear. Since it was very close to the harbor and the water of the Rhine, its foundation was enhanced with oak locks. Being dug far into the ground, the locks were quite well preserved over the two millennia since. With dendrochronology, man again a Latin word I have to pronounce in an English way, we can trace back the age of the oak locks. They must have been cut in the winter of 4 or 5 CE, and they were shortly after being rammed into the ground. So the monument was erected not later than 6 CE. It is obvious that nobody would build such a complex stone structure in a no man's land. Building a tower like this meant that there had been previous activities in the area, that made necessary to build it. So when the tower was built in 6 CE, the establishing of the settlement of the Ubii, the Oppidum Ubiorum, had to be already be in full progress in a big scale. The Ubian monument is at times open to public. 
Luckily, I recently had the chance to visit the place. It is really strange because to get there, you have to enter a normal-looking downtown building. I think it's an office building. Then you just go down the stairs beneath the surface, and instead of going to a basement, out of nowhere, you see this big bunch of ancient stones. As a history nerd, of course I freaked out when I saw it. And of course I took some pictures. I will be posting this in the episode's companion post on thehistoryofcologne.wordpress.com. That this tower, out of all the buildings of the founding era of Cologne, still exists, well, it's just pure luck. The Romans would tear down all the buildings in the centuries to come and replace them with new ones, which is reasonable because today and in the past, this was very common. The monument, or more like the tower, survived all of this because it was shortly after being built, integrated into the newly built city wall, probably around the year 9 or 10 CE, and in the year 50 CE again, when the former wooden stockade was replaced by a mighty, mighty stone wall. You can actually see in my pictures that the wall and the tower were not interlocked in architectural ways, or how you say that in English. That again is a proof that both structures were built at different times and in different styles. But why the heck am I talking about a single tower all day long? The tower I just described gives us a conclusion. Even though it was called the Opidum Ubiurum, the settlement of the Ubii, it seems like the central town in the territory of the Ubii was inhabited by a large number of Romans. And since the settlement was far away from Rome or Italy, it means that it was more precisely the Roman army and its soldiers that planned and built the city and gave the first economical impulses. The people who settled here were most likely stationed soldiers or veterans that had finished their service in allegiance in Gaul or Germania, but also all across the empire as well. But that doesn't mean that only Romans lived here. It can be assumed that the chieftains of the Ubii, for example, pretty fast adopted the lifestyle of the Romans, meaning they wore the same clothes, lived in the same houses, and consumed the same goods. That might explain why we hardly find any Ubian or Germanic evidence of early founded Cologne. So Romanized Germans could have lived here from the beginning. It became a custom that the chieftains of the Germans that were allied or subordinates of Rome sent their sons as hostages to Rome. There, these boys would receive studies in philosophy and military warfare and serve as captains in the Roman army to lead Rome's auxiliary forces that were many times non-Romans. Emperor Augustus was very in favor of this method. He knew that not only the Roman army and its weapons, but the Roman lifestyle was the key success of the Roman Empire and holding it together. Another German tribe who were called the Cherusci did likewise and sent their sons to Rome for training. Another German tribe that lived on the right side of the Rhine, who were called the Cherusci, did likewise and sent their sons to Rome for training. One of the young Cheruscian boys was later known as Arminius. Teaching this particular kid about Roman warfare would later be deeply regretted by Augustus and the Empire, but we will get to that soon. Let's get a bigger picture of early ancient Cologne. If you look at the layout of ancient Cologne, it was definitely the Romans who planned it. Roman engineers measured the area. Straight roads were laid out on a drafting table like a chessboard and the area of the city was divided in quarters, just exactly like a Roman military camp looked like. Since urbanity was totally unknown to the Germans, it is on the dice that ancient Cologne only could have been constructed by the Romans, more precisely the Roman soldiers and not the Ubii. Furthermore, the place where they erected the settlement, they slashed and burned the vegetation and then removed the hummus to get a stable ground to build on. 
And I mean the earth hummus and not that vegan stuff you can eat or somebody eats. Waterlocked areas got drainage canals to make them suitable for building. The new settlement was easily accessible. Agrippa built many roads during his two governorships in Gaul. One road leads from Cologne all the way south to Lugdunum, which is Lyon in today's southern France. And yes, I use the present tense here because this road in many ways still exists in a modern style, of course. Lyon, being close to the Italian peninsula, served as a gate for Roman Gaul to Italy. So Cologne had a direct connection to Rome over Lyon. Navarrode leads westbound to the Canal Coast to today's Boulogne-sur-Mer in today's France. Sorry, I never really had French in school. But of course there were local streets as well. These local streets connected all the settlements of the Ubii in the region to each other and of course to Cologne at last. But other than the paved highways to Lyon or Boulogne-sur-Mer, these local streets were more like dirt paths or made with clay and, you know, but when it would rain, they would get really messy. The road network was a key element to develop the region. It enabled an increased exchange in goods and trade and movability for the Roman army. But the most important road for Cologne wasn't built on land, nor built by men. The most important road was already there, the Rhine River. This way, big loads of goods and building materials could be shipped easily into town. Fin trees from the Blackwood Forest, for example, yeah? The Blackwood Forest that makes those silly clocks all you do is spy and I don't get it because, oh, I don't know. I don't want to insult the Blackwood Forest region, oh my god, no. They have a nice tradition and keep selling those clocks to those tourists. The Rhine would keep this status as one of the most important roads of Central Europe up until the 19th century, and it still is the most important and busiest waterway in Europe up until today. But why did the Romans found a city from scratch in such a place? Well, for the Romans, the left bank of the Rhine was just the beginning. Emperor Augustus wanted to conquer all the territory between the Rhine and the River Elbe. If you don't know where the River Elbe is, I would recommend you to look it up or look in my companion post. It means basically that Rome wanted to conquer all of today's Germany up to modern-day Hamburg that obviously didn't exist back then and wouldn't for more than 800 years to come. Still, Hamburg is a great city. I just visited it a few weeks ago for the second time and I really love this city. It's really great. You should go there as well, but not in summer when all the tourists flood it. And Cologne was planned as being the capital of a soon-to-be-established Roman province of whole Germania. There is an obvious proof that the Romans planned to do so. Some early sources didn't call the settlement that would become Cologne Opidum Ubiorum, but with another name, Ara Ubiorum. Ara is the Latin word for altar. Yeah, but why is it important? So it would call the settlement, not settlement of the Ubii, but they would call it altar of the Ubii. So this implies that this altar must have been pretty important and not like a normal altar that you see in a Catholic church. And of course, there's no normal altar and every altar is holy for me as a Catholic. It is clear that in the territory of the Ubii, in the last decade BCE, the Romans already had built a sanctuary, like probably a temple. It was dedicated to the goddess Roma and to Emperor Augustus as well. It was designed as a central location for the soon-to-be-conquered Germans in the new province Germania to pledge their loyalty to Augustus and the Empire. We can assume that because there was another place in the Empire that had a similar sanctuary like that, 
The earlier mentioned city of Lugdunum, or better known today as Lyon in France, was such a place that had prior established a sanctuary for the goddess Roma and Augustus for all of the Roman provinces of Gaul. There in Lyon, local Gallic chieftains from all across Gaul had to attend frequently, like maybe once a year, I don't really know, and they had to publicly renew their pledge to the goddess Roma, ergo the Roman Empire, and to Emperor Augustus. You can compare that with a vow or pledge you have to do when you enter the ranks of a soldier or if you work as a government official. So now, Cologne is established, and of course there are things I have to talk about, but we will do this in later episodes where we can get the full picture because everything is now in development, not only in building topics but also in historical topics. Everything seemed to be fine. Ancient Cologne would become the capital of the soon-to-be-established province of Germania, and around the year 5 CE, several Roman campaigns had conquered large portions of the right side of the Rhine in Germania, coming close to Augustus' goal to reach the River Alba. Even in the Oppidum Ubiorum, the new settlers and the Ubii thought the empire was going to grow again in scale, right in front of the doorstep. The Romans were done with fighting in Germania, and the new governor was a clear indication for that. Other governors prior, like Agrippa and his successors, had primarily military backgrounds, were more soldiers than politicians. The new governor of Germania now, called Publius Quinctilius Varus, was a capable military leader, he had to if he wanted to make a career in the Roman Empire, but was more a man of renown for being an expert in administration. Beforehand, he had been sent to the provinces of Africa in today's Tunisia, to the province Asia, which was just the west coast of today's Turkey, and to the province Syria, which also included not only modern-day Syria, but also places like Jerusalem. If a province Germania already existed at that time, in around 10 to 14 CE, is still heavily disputed by historians today. Nevertheless, it was clear that ancient Cologne, designed as a commuter town, should serve as the capital of that province. But this failed badly, because the Battle of the Teutoburg Forest happened. Let me give you a short preface. I could go on about where exactly the location of the battle was, if it was really that severe for Rome, the history of the reception of it, what the motives of the characters involved were, or if it really was the turning point that Rome didn't conquer the rest of Germania. But this is not the podcast about Roman-Germanic wars. You are totally free to look up the backgrounds of the battle in the Teutoburg Forest. Then you'll understand what I mean. I will give you a short version, and of course it will miss many things of this complex topic out. Well, let me put it like this. Um, a young German chieftain of the Keruski, I mentioned them earlier, named Arminius, who spent most of his life in Rome and in service of the Roman army, lured Governor Varus and free Roman legions, auxilia troops, free cavalry squadrons into a deadly trap. Arminius and Varus had been friends, and the governor, of course, trusted Arminius. When Arminius told him that there was a revolt going on in the province on the right side of the Rhine, Varus changed the course of his army into the Teutoburg Forest to get to the place where the alleged revolt was happening. What he didn't know... Arminius had switched sides and convinced many Germanic tribes that lived far away east of the Rhine River in the soon-to-be-established Roman province of Germania to join him in a full-scale rebellion to push the Romans back to the left side of the Rhine and then liberate all of Germania. 
The Roman army was the best army in the world at that time. Even way outnumbered, they could achieve decisive victories against its enemies. But in the rough terrain of a German forest, not knowing the place, they could only walk on very narrow paths. This resulted in a line of march stretching out perilously long, like 15 kilometers, that is like 9 miles or even longer. It was a perfect situation for an ambush, and Aminius and his fellow Germanic allies did just that as they had planned. The Romans desperately tried to escape with forced marches out of those battles, but there was no escape. Over three days and nights, Aminius and his forces kept ambushing in a guerrilla-style warfare. In the end, Rome lost three of its five legions that were stationed at the Rhine. 20,000 up to 30,000 Roman soldiers were killed. This means that in just three days, Rome lost 10% of its whole army they had globally. Well, globally, in, you know, in the Roman Empire. The survivors were killed and slaughtered for Germanic gods in the forest. And most of them didn't even get a burial. They would just rot on the surface of the forest. Oh my, this episode is way too long now. And I would really like to point out what this battle meant, how Aminus ended up, and uh, you have to look all of this up. I hope you're still listening. And I know I have to come to a conclusion now. What did this mean for the Oppidum Obiorum, well, later Cologne? It meant, of course, that becoming a capital of the big province Germania was not going to happen. But Cologne served now as a stronghold of Roman authority in the region. Ancient Cologne would remain in a peripheral location, a border between the Romanized West and the so-called Barbaric East. At the end of the Roman era of Cologne, I will dedicate a whole episode on this topic and how the Roman legacy defined Cologne up until today. Because for next 500 years, Cologne would be under Roman rule, with many Germanic influences, of course. This border between the Romanized West and the so-called Barbaric East was not like the one between today's North and South Korea or like the Berlin Wall in the Cold War. Regarding trade and culture, this border was open. The newly established settlement on the Rhine would prosper and benefit from that. Let's call it a day here. Next episode, we have to take a small visit to Rome again. I'm sorry, but we have to. This is the history of Cologne. It is connected with Roman history. In this case, a noble woman born here in the Oppidum Ubiorum enters this stage of history and will be very important for this young town. Why and what she does for Cologne that earns her the title of the real founder of Cologne, we will explore in the next episode. So, stay tuned. Thank you. And as always, auf Wiedersehen. <laughs>